Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. This is Buddy Franklin. This is the greatest showman. Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Oh, who else? McDonald. Once again, welcome to episode 78 of Americans Watching the Footy, season 2, episode 6. I am Benjamin Castle here in South San Francisco, California, alongside my brother Ethan. This is the third and final part of our season preview, and in honor of that, we're going to theme this episode after a very famous third part, the Book of Mormon. So, in honor of that... This episode will be 100% free of premarital sex and caffeine. Are you wearing your undergarments? Yes. Good. Then we can really get started. And this is going to be a pretty heavy episode if you're just looking at who we've got left. It's been pretty Victorian heavy thus far. We only have one Victorian team left. It is a pretty big one, though. Just a lot of good talking points in general. Five out of these six teams I can really see as being relevant when push comes to shove in July and August. After going through our recording last night, because we're recording this just the night after we did part two, I realized that the six remaining teams are going to be really fun because they're all teams that I have a lot of opinions about instead of just, yep, they're the same as they always were. There's there's a lot here, and that's going to make this fun. As Benjamin mentioned, only one Victorian team, which I think is fine. You know, people talk a lot about Victorian teams getting so much of the attention in the Australian media. That's something where we don't do that as much. I mean, we'll talk more about the two teams that we follow. But other than that, I think we spread things around just based on who's relevant and worth talking about, not really discriminating based off of where a team is located. So, I mean, I think that's just a product of us not living there. And when you're when you're surrounded by all the footy talk in Melbourne, then it's going to rub off. Yes, but also at the same time, I'm someone who tries to avoid, you know, like that regional bias type deal, for example, not focusing on, say, the Yankees and the Red Sox in baseball and so on. So I hope that fans of non-Victorian teams especially can appreciate what we're doing. Only two of these six teams made pretty minimalist changes. But I've got some strong opinions about the coaching on those two teams and just they're interesting teams altogether. So, yeah, let's go. Why not? Why waste any more time when instead we could be talking about one of those teams that didn't do much with their list, but could be making a stride into September for the first time this season. Da 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 da. Well, I mean, they made strides into September in 2020, but so did everybody. Fair. You get it, though. Yes, we are talking about the Gold Coast Suns who, you know, as the year went on, I think we were among the first ones to pick up on, hey, these guys are kind of good. I never doubted 
what they had in their forward two-thirds. And thanks to Matt Rowell getting a full season, you saw kind of another off-ball element that wasn't there for them before. I was so impressed with Rowell with what we saw of him in a little time he had in 2020 and 2021. And I didn't expect his game to be taken in that sort of wing tackling role, but it allowed for Chuke Miller and Noah Anderson to get a lot more meaningful possessions because they're always going to be high in disposal numbers anyway, especially Miller. But it just facilitated their overall movement. And then despite them trading away Isaac Rankin, I still like what they have up front. You've got a plethora of tolls there. Ben King should be good to go, hopefully, for round one after tearing his ACL and missing all last year. Mavior Troll scored in nearly every game last year. Levi Castle might actually get pushed out a bit if they try to put multiple talls there in the forward 50. I want to see Ben King as more of that running half forward that I liked of him in 2021 so that maybe they could be able to spread things out a bit more. Going a bit smaller, you've got Joel Jeffrey, one of the couple Northern Territory players that they picked up in their academy. He was super fun to watch before he got hurt. Yeah, had a couple great games in front of his family and Darwin, as did Malcolm Roses Jr., I believe Jeffrey also had an over-the-back goal against the Bulldogs that I included in the footage for the We Didn't Bounce the Sharon video. We didn't bounce the Sharon. It's, it's fun to talk about this team being young and actually having players that might actually want to stick around because that's not how the Gold Coast Suns have tended to work. I mean, if you put together an all-ex-Gold Coast Suns team, you'd have a team that would contend for the top four most years. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often, actually, where, you know, they get a guy towards the end of their career, where it's kind of, you know, being a retirement home and a vacation spot would actually kind of make sense. If they're able to build themselves up to be a team that can make regular finals pushes, then I think we'll start seeing that. As much as I know people like being at home, I think, you know, selling yourself as the vacation spot might not be so bad. Now, I do want to revisit and talked about kind of their evolution last year and how we were kind of early on the, hey, these guys might be kind of good. But I remember early on, they had that loss to GWS where they just got killed in round three, I think. And at that point, it was just like, all right, same old shit. They have games where they just don't show up. And then they were pretty darn competitive pretty much every other round other than a couple times the first Q clash, round six, I mean, that was Q clash. You kind of saw it coming there and then got just outdone by an improving Essendon team round 18 and overrun by Geelong big time in round 22. But they were in every other game if they didn't actually close out the job. I mean, right after that Essendon loss, they had the most competitive Q clash in our memory watching the game the next round at home. And that had me thinking, you know, really positively about what that rivalry could become. They had some tough losses last year. The 19-point loss to the Bulldogs, where they just kind of ran out of steam. Two-point loss at Port Adelaide that kind of put them on life support. The five-point loss to Collingwood at home, even though they did follow that up the next week by beating Richmond after the siren. The fact is they became a compelling team that we both really enjoyed watching because we didn't know a lot about them. We got to learn something each week whether it was Caleb Graham's ability to kind of anchor the defense or how awesome Alex Davies' grandpa is and how he needs to be protected at all costs. It was awesome to see him come over from Japan for that game. 
I remember uh, seeing footage of Stuart Dew talking with him afterward and him doing the goal side and everything. You talk about places being family clubs. Hopefully, we start to really see those sort of connections blossom at Gold Coast as well. And speaking of international ties with Gold Coast, we've got to mention Ace Oya. His family absolutely losing their shit in Port Moresby was awesome, and hopefully we'll start to see more Papuan players and just more players from Polynesian countries, especially Melanesian. You know, Asava Radagalea obviously has Fijian roots. I'd love to see more people in that region of the world take on footy instead of rugby. And hopefully these got, you know, a player like Oya is, you know, the first of many rather than an anomaly. Radagalea and Natanui both for Fiji, obviously. And yeah, all it takes is one player to really start that. And that's why I'm excited for the International Cup to hopefully return next year, because that was how Ace emerged and got noticed by AFL scouts. Thinking about that, um, the whole retirement hoe idea, I mean, maybe that was what convinced Levi Caswell to come over there. He had been delisted by Carlton, and even though he has never gotten the, the big bag himself, just, again, having that variety of talls allowed for flexibility in the, in the form of really Mavir Chol being able to play to the fullest we've seen him yet. Really bulked up from his time at Richmond. Second ruck after Jared Witz, who isn't nearly as capable on the rest of the ground, unfortunately. Yeah, he's a hit-out machine and a, uh, a not-much-else machine. Interesting that they had Witz be the one to take all the Captain's Day stuff on instead of Tuke Miller. Maybe that's because Miller is still rehabbing a little bit, but he said he should be good to go for the start of the season. I mentioned Ben King should be good to go. Brandon Ellis may be available. He's rehabbing a calf injury. We'll see about Will Powell with his hamstring. That was a nasty one that he suffered last year. It was just a really bad run of wingers doing hamstrings and ACLs. There was him and his was especially honorable. Well, he had had such a good game that day, too. I forget who it was against, but he really showed up that day. So there was Powell. There was also Lockie Weller a little before that. He'll be missing the first couple rounds. So we'll see how long after that. The last of the three was Connor Butterick, and he is probably sidelined until the midseason. Mac Andrew will be missing the first two rounds as well after a DUI. I was very high on him and still am, even though he hasn't had incredible results yet because he's the tallest, skittiest person you'll ever see. I love watching him. There's a video of a chase down tackle by him in a VFL game last year that I think about a lot in the bathtub, kind of everywhere when I'm driving, when I'm falling asleep. So yeah, hopefully he's a... Not going to do more dumb stuff like that. And hopefully he just ends up being a more well-rounded player. I mean, it's going to be hard for him to build up on that frame, obviously. But he's got to really learn how to use that then. Worst case scenario, he's kind of an in-and-out-of-the-lineup guy who's just a fun novelty. Hopefully he's both really fascinating to look at and a good player because... It's just fun to watch someone built like him do ordinary things, like just jogging. I can't look away because it's like you think his legs are going to snap in half at any moment. I mean, it's like some Waluigi stuff there is built. I think I mentioned like he's built like Waluigi without the bow legs. Yeah, that's that's what makes it different. Anyway, he's cool and they could use a little bit more help defensively. 
as much as it was nice to see Caleb Graham really settle in last year, Graham was maybe not the most complete player in that back six, but him being a stable presence there allowed for the rest of the players to slide in in a bit more normal way. I forget which game it was where he really established himself. I thought maybe it was the win at Sydney or the win over Frio in the rain. It was the blowout of Hawthorne round 11 where I think you first took notice of him based on what our Twitter history is. I also noted his success against the Crows a few rounds later. He's going to need to have a more important role this year because Rory Thompson has retired. I mean, he wasn't frequently in the lineup to begin with, unfortunately, but Graham's going to need to be more important, and I think you're going to really start noticing more out of my sleeper, Charlie Ballard. I think he's already a pretty underrated player, especially in that duo with Sam Collins. As I said, Graham's the one around who really the rest of the back line is shaped, so I don't see Ballard in that same respect, but I think he's shown the highest ceiling out of that group. I like his aggression in one-on-one situations, and his and Collins' one-on-one success will determine how correct I am with my belief that the Suns need to be really high scorers this season. And I believe they were like the seventh highest scoring team last year, so they certainly have that potential. Hopefully it doesn't have to be a scenario where they have to put up 90s or 100s every time in order to win. My sleeper is Charlie Constable. He was with Geelong for three years, played in 12 games, was listed for two games last year technically, but one was the unused medical sub that was actually for that win over Hawthorne, and then he was used as a medical sub the next week. I believe for the uh, Hawthorne game, people took note of how, like, Man, he does not know the song. But Constable's a guy who, even though he hasn't had tremendous results over the years, never had a game with more than one goal at the AFL level. I just think he's got so much upside that he could become a main feature as a goal scorer. He's around 6'3", so similar height to Joel Jeffrey, so maybe Jeffrey could get in the way of Constable's time. I don't know, I just... He's a guy that it's always been like, when's he going to break through? When's he going to break through? And it's always been someone else instead, like Elijah Hollins last year. Still, he's only 23, which in footy terms makes him very old. But yeah, he's my pit. What else do we need to do? Just the uh, schedule stuff? Yeah, I'll just also quickly note, Tuke Miller is my Brownlow pick. He nearly won it last year. I was hoping that he'd get votes in round 23 to get him over the line, but he didn't get any. Overall, though, you know, not many players are going to get in the way of consistent two or three vote performances from him. I mean, Anderson would be the biggest contender from that, and maybe the occasional good game out of out of Swallow or a more on-ball role from Matt Rowell, but he's one of the highest level players in the league. You can buy that with not many players getting in the way of him potentially getting votes, and I think it's a pretty sound pick. It's not like, you know, Bottom Pelly having to compete with Jack McRae, Bailey Smith, Adam Tremor, etc. Or Petraka and Oliver maybe canceling each other out. You had mentioned Anderson. We may have to differentiate between Anderson and Anderson because, yeah, Noah and Jed, who was picked up as a supplemental piece after North Elicit, and he was a possession magnet last year, but I think that was mostly just because he was with North and it was really him and Davies Uniac getting the numbers. Yeah, whereas, you know, we talked about 
when we previewed North, we talked about Aaron Hall and meters gained. Might have been a little bit like that. Functional versus non-functional stats, I said. Yeah, his possessions were nowhere near as noticeable as, say, Jai Simpkins or Luke Davies Uniacs. But seeing him on a different team now will be something to keep an eye on. I think it'll give us some insight as to his talent level versus just what the stats say. Looking at the Suns' schedule, I don't know if there's a single three-game stretch that I look at and, and say, oh, fuck, that's really difficult. It's, I think, the most balanced and well-spread-out schedule in the entire league. I don't think... Well, I see a stretch with four out of five that are pretty nasty, and the fifth is a trip to Perth. But there's no, like, three consecutive weeks or four consecutive weeks that you look at as, oh, fuck. So it's pretty well balanced. But if there is a stretch that I had to say is really grueling, it's round seven to 11 at Richmond. Well, it's at Marble, so Richmond will cry about that. Then home against the D's, at the Eagles, at Brisbane, home against the Bulldogs, but home in this case is Darwin. Yeah, they've got the two games up at TIO Stadium this year. Round 11 against the Bulldogs and round 12 against the Crows right ahead of their bye. Again, I like that they're doing that with really helping establish the connection with that academy area. It's the same reason you see Melbourne playing the game in Traeger Park. Yeah, other than that, with alternate sites, the game against Frio during the Gather Round is at Norwood Oval. One of two games being played there. It's going to be the first of two Friday games. The other one being at the Adelaide Oval. Yeah, so I guess the Gather round. schedule goes one Thursday, two Friday, and then three Saturday, three Sunday. And it looks like the only overlap is going to be on the Sunday. As per usual, which is unfortunate. Other than that, they play in, well, technically Belariv, but Hobart to close out the season round 24 at Blunchstone Arena. And they also go to... Canberra to play the Giants in round 19. The Suns' round 14 visit to Carlton is their only game at the MCG. We've come to expect something like that. And I know, Ethan, you are not yet adjusted to the new name of Heritage Bank Stadium. No, I am not. Me color-coding our schedule reference document certainly helps, because I have that in Suns colors. But again, as you said one or two episodes ago, we were so used to seeing Metricon Stadium just plastered on everything because it was the second most commonly used stadium in 2020, that it's going to take a bit of adjusting. As part of the whole balanced schedule that the Suns have, their double-ups are all pretty reasonable. Crows, Lions, of course, for Q-Clash, Blues, Kangas, Saints, Swans. And they've got a good track record at the SCG. Won there last year. Going by the metrics that... Benjamin calculated this is probably somewhere between the 10th or 12th toughest schedule, and they finished 12th last year, so that's pretty appropriate. I think evaluating the double-ups really depends on how high you think the Blues and Crows may climb this year, because I expect them to climb a bit. That climb could be enough to offset St. Kilda's likely fall, but still, I think this is a pretty fair schedule to get. There's no three games in a row where it's just murderer's row. Like I said, though, there is that stretch with four out of five, and the fifth is a trip to Perth, but I don't see, as of now, any one stretch that you look at and think, oh boy, this is 
this could end up costing Stewart do his job. Yeah, or like this is one where if they come out of, you know, these four games better than one and three, I'll be really impressed. And I will note, yes, Stewart do has a contract through next year, but I think this is the year where they're going to have to make the move. A lot of times what happens with coaches that are kind of on the hot seat getting that extension, the two-year deal? Yeah, I think some, I think at least in American sports, you know, there's a lot of here, we're giving you this next year so you don't have to look over your shoulder and can just focus on coaching. Hopefully that's the case for Stewart then. He seems like a cool guy. I hope he does well. I hope the Suns do well. I hope they get into finals footy for the first time. I just want to see them continue to build up a real fan base instead of just be, you know, a vacation spot for other teams. It's going to take some of that success to help them build that up. That and hopefully the Q-Clash rivalry really takes off. I just took a break to go take a dump, but you didn't have to take a break because of technology. You probably also didn't hear that motorcycle whizzing by just now. Again, because of technology. So we've got five teams left. Talking about the Suns was fun. Spin the wheel or, well, press the button if we're going to be technical. But world, the time has come to push the button, as the Chemical Brothers would say. Well, Q-Tip on the Chemical Brothers track. All right. How about the team that we hyped up the most last year and were correct about the most? It's particularly you. Fremantle? It's Rio time. All right. So they had such a weird offseason. Let's start with that. Yeah. On one hand, you bring in Luke Jackson. On the other, you give up Logue and Tucker. At least that was for picks. And then they gave up Blake Akers basically for nothing. For a third rounder, when we both thought he was worth at least a second, if not a second and something else, and then the trading away of Lloyd Meek makes sense when he wasn't going to have much of a spot with Jackson coming in, and they got a good return in Jager O'Meara, but they also dealt away Rory Lobb. He's now at the Bulldogs. And the real result of this is that they got a lot younger very quickly, and we've said a whole lot of positive things about the younger part of their list, but we're going to have to see that section really come into their own for them to stay at the position they were last year. So I expect things to cool off a little bit for them this year. You know, they're they're still a September team in my eyes. Oh, no, there's, I think they're still a finalist. So I think they took a bit of a step back that they didn't need to take with the idea of either prolonging their window or taking a bigger step forward in a couple of years. I mean, I mean, the question is, of course, you know, how much of it was their hand being forced? Because... You couldn't control Akers and Lobb wanting out once they said it. They said it. They could have gotten a lot more for Akers, though. That I'm nearly certain of. That I agree, and the Blues will reap the benefits of having him. They were the first team we discussed in this three-part exercise, so go back to the start of episode one for our thoughts on them. Anyway, even with those steps, this should still be a pretty solid team. They gained team spits last year by putting on so much defensive pressure. I regularly likened it to a full-court press from a basketball team, and that that really hit home for you when they won at Cardinia Park. Exactly. There was like one sequence in particular where the Cats really couldn't get it up to midfield, and like you had to speed it up to watch it. That's how long it took. Oh, I mean, I, I sped it up in the We Didn't Bounce the Sharon video. There was a line, Dockers run a full-court press, and I believe that, Ended up with a turnover just outside the 4-50 for free on a goal. And the thing is, this was a team that, look, the Dockers weren't 
especially lucky with injuries last year, especially at the forward positions. Michael Walters missed a decent amount of time. Nat Fife was never able to be consistently out there, and Matt Taberner is Matt Taberner. Constant back problems. And he's obviously going to have a more magnified role this year now that Lobb's out of the picture. I think it's really going to need to be him and whatever amount of time Luke Jackson spends up forward because Sean Darcy clearly remains the Ruck 1. He was exceptional in their preseason showing against Port. He made me question Scott Lysette's match fitness. That's how good he was. And Jackson didn't play in that game. I mean, we've already seen the signs that Jackson could be used all over the field, you know, particularly kind of a half forward, maybe even taking sub center bounces where he isn't the Ruckman, just kind of attending at that middle six. And we know that Justin Longmuir likes those versatile sorts of players with how he was able to maximize Griffin Logue this past year. I think they're going to need to play Jackson forward a decent amount because they're pretty set on small forwards, even if Frederick is out for a couple games to start the year. I mean, Frederick's more of a more successful on the wing anyway. So, you know, you're looking further up the ground. Yeah, that's going to need to be more of a necessity. And we'll see if Nat Fife could stay healthy because now that he finally had a pretty full summer to really get accustomed to being a forward in that group, it should bode well. I'm a big Sam Switkowski fan. I think he's a pretty important part of this unit. And Switkowski only played 14 games last year. So only in there about half the time. So I think they're in for some better health up front. They also had some guys that, you know, were on the fringe that were pretty solid pieces that most teams would have loved to have in any capacity, would have been, you know, mainstays on the list instead of being kind of on the fringe like, say, Bailey Banfield was. I'm still surprised that Banfield decided to re-up when he's probably still going to be in a fringe spot and maybe a sub-role. And he showed better when he was in games right away. I went over the numbers a few episodes back. I mean, I was hoping that the Eagles would really be able to do something for him. He is a he is a Western Australian native, so that probably factored into things in some respect. Anyway, this team is good. They've got a lot of depth. They play a really unique scheme that I think a lot of teams are still struggling to figure out. If they can learn how to play when water falls from the sky, they could be maybe top four material, although I think their ceiling is a little bit lower than last year. Give it one or two years, and we could be talking top two for this team if they're able to to stay healthy and if players like Jai Amos really come into their own as we expect them to, because Amos showed a lot in the limited time he had, missed a lot of the season with a kidney injury, but came back and had an important role in the elimination final comeback. Seeing him healthy would be a lot of fun. He was really entertaining in the brief spurts he had. And I'm just going to mention him because I'm surprised you haven't yet. Nathan O'Driscoll. O'Driscoll and Frederick on opposite wings for the future would be pretty ideal, honestly. You know, there are games where we question some of Frederick's decision-making, but again, he still has time to grow as well. You know, O'Driscoll was kind of our inspiration for this sleeper pick stuff that we decided to throw in this year. So, Benjamin, who's yours? My sleeper is on the older side. It's 28-year-old Ethan Hughes. You know, between Frederick O'Driscoll and Liam Henry's improved form as well. Henry has had a pretty noteworthy preseason, and he's also been in a lot of discussions because he's really close with Kazi Pickett, so maybe Melbourne will try to bring him over to help solidify the case for Kazi to stay. But 
Hughes finds himself in a rough spot between who's in front of him, but between the experience and a bit more height there at wing and half forward, I could imagine he's a quick call-up if Henry or the currently injured Frederick has a down game. And I expect they'll try a few different options there at wing, see if, you know, that's really Frederick's spot, because obviously, you know, between Frederick and Aker's departure, there are some questions there. Just going over the rest of the injury report as well, along with Frederick, Michael Walters is in doubt for round one with an Achilles injury, so that's another spot where those younger guys are going to need to show up more. Luke Ryan has a back injury, so hopefully he can get back from that. He was a really sound piece in a lot of one-on-one defensive work. You know, when either he or Brennan Cox had a down game, the other one tended to step up. And I rank Ryan at this point a deal higher than I do Cox. Corey Wagner is more likely to be ready finishing up rehab of a hamstring injury. I imagine just with the wealth of young options for Frio that you're looking more at a younger player for your sleeper. Yeah, um, 19 years old, in fact, that being Neil Erasmus, who played in five games last year. He played pretty well in that round three Western Derby against the Eagles, the first of the two. He's about six foot three, so not the biggest guy out there, but I think with his build, kind of a tall, skinny guy, he could factor in either kind of as a speed-based forward or as one who can take marks. I think they'd probably need him to take marks more, considering just that they have a lot of speed at the forward positions already, but he's one who could slot in in a lot of different ways and really help push them to the next level, because when you look at this team, other than Jackson, there aren't a ton of guys that really stand out. It's a bunch of really good players instead of, you know, a superstar. But I just think that's yet another guy that can put them in a position where even if they don't have that one stud, you have a bunch of really good players with no glaring weakness, and that would probably be enough to take you a really long way. I think he could end up being not just a guy, but a mainstay in this lineup. Looking at the Dockers' schedule, well, let's just strength of schedule first. So obviously, they double up against the Eagles. Other than that, they've got the Lions, Cats, Hawks, Swans, and Bulldogs. So they are one of four teams to double up against four finalists. Based on teams finishing position in finals last year, they're tied with Geelong for the toughest schedule. Though if you go off of just home and away results and percentage, it's only the sixth or seventh toughest. So yeah, definitely another reason to maybe temper your expectations for home and away success for Frio, especially when a few of those double-offs come in some really nasty stretches. Going into their bye, they have to go to the Swans, then host Geelong, and then play at Melbourne. And then they come out of the bye hosting Richmond, and they've had some good contests these past couple years. But then you look at rounds 16 through 21, and that may be the toughest six-round stretch that any team has to go through all season. Yeah, but I was looking through their schedule. I mean, you look at the first four rounds, and that includes two of the teams that only won two games last year. They don't play a team that made finals until round six, but man, does it get tough after that. Um, You mentioned rounds nine through 11. Then they come out of the bye with the Tigers at home, but still the Tigers. And then, yeah, that round 16 to 21 stretch at the Bulldogs, home against Carlton, 
at Collingwood, home against Sydney, at Geelong, home against Brisbane. That's uh, that's about as tough as it gets. And I imagine that we'll mention this, you know, when that time of season approaches, you know, going into that stretch, that you'll really need to take stock of where the Dockers are at that point and put it into perspective of what's coming up. If they're in, you know, a top four range before that, don't be surprised if they end up dropping to to seventh or eighth or even out of finals for a little bit if it gets particularly tough in that stretch. They do finish up a bit easier, two of their last three games being the Eagles in the Western Derby, that West Coast host, and Hawthorne. That Hawthorne game is away for round 24 at the G. Round 23, they host Port Adelaide. Free of Port Adelaide, by the way, I remember because I was on a trip at that point. I was in Michigan. I slept through a decent amount of that game and wish I had watched it live because it was a good one. I remember that one. That was a really fun contest. A 99-91 to 91 win for Fremantle at a time when Port were really playing just about the best that they did all season last year. Speaking of Adelaide, when Frio and the rest of the league go there for the Gather round. in round five, the Dockers will be playing at their only, you know, unusual site for the year, and that'll be against the Suns at Norwood Oval in the first Friday game of that round, which we already mentioned by virtue of having broken down the Suns before this. All right, four more to go. This is really fun to do. It's just getting me way more excited for the season to actually be started on Thursday. Holy cow, that's less than a week. I am so looking forward to living on two time zones again. The World Baseball Classic is kind of helping prep me for that. You got the Korea-Japan game in about three hours, and thanks to their loss to Australia, Korea's backs are against the wall. Yeah, well, because you've got the groups in Tokyo and in Taichung that are helping with that. I remember... One year when they were doing one of the groups in Taichung, we had just moved, so it was like, unpack and watch 3 a.m. baseball. Game on. And also, game on for us to break down the Greater Western Sydney Giants, captained by Toby Green. As I mentioned when we did news a few episodes ago, I love this move. If a good team did this, I would say, what the fuck? Any team other than Collingwood. But when you're a bad team and you have nothing to lose, you instantly become more watchable by having a guy who can kind of be a shit heel as your captain because he might do very uncaptain things or he might actually be great in the role and it would just be really funny. Like, whatever happens is going to be entertaining. And normally, I don't care that much about who's captain. I mean, having, you know, I've talked about how having Dane Zorka was a captain. I didn't think was very good for Brisbane, but I don't think it's that important a position. I don't think it's that important a position in most sports. I think it's more important in footy than it is in any American sport, but it's still just, you know, it's not actually all that significant, but it's more noteworthy than anything that they decided, yeah, Toby's going to be the standalone captain. He'd been on leadership before. He was one of three co-captains last year. Stephen Cadillo with his eyebrow and... Josh Kelly with the others. They're now his vice captain. So just a, a leadership shakeup. Adam Kingsley was really added that he wanted one captain, I guess. And as I mentioned before, Kingsley is the only new first time AFL head coach this season. The other three hires all retreads in Ross Lyon, Alistair Clarkson, and Brad Scott. As I've said, I'm much more in favor of new coaches than 
retread hires. I like seeing what someone new can do instead of someone who's been fired before, unless you know they were super young and learned a lot from getting fired. And that's something that I've kind of applied in most sports, pretty much all sports at this point. So let's see what a new coach can do. When we talked about North Melbourne, I talked about how Alistair Clarkson, you know, it might be an issue. Like, will he have enough patience? Is he going to have patience there? Is Ross Lyon going to have patience at St. Kilda with the shit show they have? You know, at least at North, Clarko knows what he's getting into. I'm not sure if Ross Lyon does at St. Kilda. Just the thing is, if you're coaching a bad team and you're accustomed to success, are you going to have the energy, the enthusiasm? I think the example I made was, you know, saving a ball to would have gone out on the fold in the final minutes of a blowout loss. You know, stuff like that where instead of just, you know, putting down the headset and calling it a day, you're still focused and locked in even when the outcome of the game has been long to sight. That's what you need to have with a bad team. And by all means, we think GWS is going to be a pretty bad team. I have them pretty much penned in as a bottom three, and I, I can definitely see them as the one spiller. I still have North there for now. I have West Coast there, and after looking at schedules, I think West Coast schedule is a little tougher than GWS, especially early on, but if nobody's expecting this team to be good, I just want them to be entertaining because last year their games kind of took this format of generally they weren't close, but they weren't enough of a blowout to turn away, and it was, I think they were the example I used for baby-making footy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, the thumbnail of that, I put G-Man on the thumbnail for a reason. G-Man looks like a Simpsons character, by the way. And the baby looked at me. That's another episode title, actually. Yeah, a bunch of, like, four, five goal losses in there. And then there were a couple games where they were in it for the first half and maybe even started out strongly like they did against Brisbane. I believe that was in round 11 at the Gabba, which was just Mark McVeigh's second game in charge and then cooled off, ended up losing that one by 14. I was encouraged by what I saw at that point and going forward from some of the younger pieces there, and I'm glad that they've added a couple more this offseason between Aaron Cadman being the top pick in the draft. Not sure if he's going to start at AFL level, which is a little weird to say. At least they have other good players at his position. It's not like there's really no reason. I mean... How soon until Braden Proust gets suspended, though? He was already looked at by MRO. I mean, between key four and ruck time, I'm expecting Proust to do something stupid that puts him off the park for at least two games this year. And also, I mean, I was thinking that Harry Himmelberg was going to stay in the back rather than go back up forward, and that that would allow Cadman then to really get the forward 50 time right away. What I like about GWS is they're not just, like, stuck in this same spot every year they've changed constantly they've had a lot of different identities they've gone way up and way down in their pretty brief history and i hope that each year they come back with something completely different i'm always in favor of teams changing and not just being a you know you know what you're gonna get type deal not being complacent even if it's you know getting them okay results yeah and I hope that this GWS season does not resemble last year because I want to have reason to talk about them other than just their defense is bad. Just going back to the other younger pieces aside from Cadman, I was really hoping to see Toby Bedford right away and be able to gauge where he could fit in if he had consistent best 22 time. Unfortunately, he did his hamstring and is out for another two plus months. 
Also should note that their second pick from this draft, Max Grzebski, did his knee and will be out for a couple months as well. Nick Madden will be missing four months with a foot injury, but I hope to see a lot of different players in a lot of different spots because that's what a building team ought to do. You know, if you know you're going to be in a low position, make the most of the time you're going to spend there. You don't want to be the Colorado Rockies. You don't want to be perpetually, I guess the footy equivalent would be, you know, perpetually in that like six to eight win range. The Colorado Rockies are basically, you know, stuck in the vicinity of 70-ish wins every year. GWS, you know, year in and year out, you don't know what you're going to get. And yeah, they couldn't be god-awful this year. And I don't think their best-case scenario is more than one or two wins better than last year. But if it comes with more compelling games, a win over a team that ends up making finals, that would be that would be nice. And in fact, last year, I mean, they didn't even beat... Who was the best team they beat? I think it was the Suns. Yeah, it was the Suns with the performance that did definitely turn our heads in round three. All the teams they beat also had losing records. Let's change that, please. Beat someone good. Do something that makes me want to watch your games. Even if some of that is, you know, Braden Bruce being stupid or Toby Green, you know, trying to rip out someone's pancreas or something. Who's your sleeper for this year's team? A lot of options. I'm going with someone who played 10 games last year in his debut campaign. That being Jacob Ware, a mature age recruit. He was 23 then, 24 now. He was the club rising star last year, which surprised me a little bit. But I liked him more his first few times out than I did his last few appearances. I took notice of him right away because he debuted with a goal against the Eagles. Never a huge possession guy, but, you know, still working into the side. And as the club moves on from their first generation in the midfield, I'm particularly thinking of Stephen Canelio in that respect, because he's been there from the beginning, and I'm not sure how much more time he has, considering he's already 29. I'm expecting that Jacob Ware will increasingly be looked to as someone who could really be a stable piece for them, you know, four plus years down the line. He has to prove himself this season. He's got a single year contract, and I think he should make a good run of things. I also remember him because last year against the Lions, he took a Sharon to the, um, to the Sharons, I'll say. That was the second time out against the Lions. My pick is Jason Gilby, the milkman. Is it because he's the milkman? It is completely because he's the milkman. Have no idea if he's going to really get AFL time. I this year hope he does. Oh, please. Just for the sake of being so marketable already. Look, the Giants are a team that really need to get people to talk about them again. This guy does that. Looking at their schedule, I think it's pretty friendly, pretty well balanced. They face, I mean, as friendly as it could be for like a bottom three team, I guess. I mean, not as friendly as North's. Here's the thing, if you go by everything other than ladder positions from last year, it's a middle-of-the-pack schedule. If you go by that, it's a very easy schedule because their double-ups are against Adelaide, Carlton, Essendon, Hawthorne, Sydney, and the Bulldogs, which there are multiple teams in there that could be better this year. And then there's a Hawthorne team that could take a big step back. And then who the fuck knows where Essendon's going to go? There's only one real, like, four-week stretch that's really, really nasty. I will give an honorable mention of their round 19 through 22 stretch, that where they host the Suns in Canberra, 
they travel to Ballarat to face the Bulldogs. They host the Swans and they travel to Port. But I'm looking at round six to nine as their toughest. Nice. They host the Lions in Canberra. They play at the SCG. They host the Bulldogs in Canberra. And they play at Collingwood in their only visit to the MCG for the season. Ah, that's the Gold Coast Suns treatment for you. The Giants only have three games in the city of Melbourne altogether. They have two at Marvel. Then they only have two others in Victoria. They play at Geelong, round 11. And like I said, they play the Bulldogs in Ballarat. So I'm going to lead into Benjamin's you know alternate site thing by saying that both legs against the Bulldogs will be at alternate site since they host them in Canberra and then face them in the return leg at Ballarat. What other interesting sites do they have? Well, how about this? All three teams that we've talked about in this first half of this episode have a gather round game at Norwood. The Dockers and Suns play each other, while GWS will play Hawthorne there in the middle game on Sunday, April 16th. By the way, during his like season opening speech today, which was a really funny speech, or I guess yesterday, Gil talked about how good ticket sales have been for that, as well as for round one altogether. And this shouldn't be a year where attendance has fully rebounded from the last few years. Oh, don't say that. Mark McGowan's about to lock down the state again. He heard you. Remember the Giants' banner. Giants are in town, tough and hard-nosed. Frio will be wishing the border stayed closed. Looks like this year they only play the Dockers at home. That's round 14 just before they're by. But yeah, holy alternate sites, Batman. You've got Norwood. You've got their games in Canberra. The first of those is round six, the Anzac round against the Lions. Then, as you mentioned, Ethan, they've got the Bulldogs a couple weeks later. And then they host the Suns there in round 19. Only three games in Canberra this year, but I think just the abundance of alternate sites is pretty nuts. And of course, the most important of those alternate sites is round 16. Traeger Park. Alice Springs, when Ethan and I make our footy pilgrimage, we must get to Alice Springs at least once. There may have to be multiple. I'm expecting multiple pilgrimages, but Alice Springs is as big a bucket list item for us as any venue for any sport in the world for us. Do we have to walk around the MCG seven times on this pilgrimage? With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Continuing on the footy Hajj concept... What are we throwing rocks at? I mean, if it's the stoning of the devil, then wouldn't it just be the stoning of the demons? I mean, there's a Ron Barassi statue there outside the G. I mean, I think it would be funnier if we just threw, like, pebbles at Christian Petraka, but I feel like that probably wouldn't go over very well. Which Melbourne player would be the most okay with it? Ben Brown, if we told him why. He was one of the first players we recognized, too. He was really the second after... But he didn't expect that soundbite in this episode. Don't forget, we're on Twitter at Americans Footy. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. That's Castle with a K. There, I said it for you. 
I'm at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. Brian Harabe, the Fody Cat, is at Ethan's feet right now. He's on Instagram at Cat Named Brian. Also, we are on YouTube at Americans Footy, and we'll be building up that channel as the season gets going as well. We should definitely be reaction YouTubers. Like, I hope not. I remember when reaction was like such a big genre too. So how about this final three we got here? Am I supposed to respond to that or is that just an observation in the form of a question? I mean, you could say something, but three very topical teams this offseason from three different states. There's one that's a shoe-in for finals, and the others, who knows? We're picking back up with one of those others. Ethan, you were wrong. I thought it would have been funny since Carlton was our first for Collingwood to be last, but I guess they're going to be 16th, judging by your little lead-in. Eddie's a wanker, and Jack Genevin did ketamine. SpongeBob! Me, Bob! Yeah, I mean... As I might have mentioned before, ketamine is what killed Mr. Krabs. It's not really like a commonly thought of drug around these parts, at least. I mean, here, you know, you've got like crazy opioids, but we're thinking of like recreational party drug stuff, like cocaine makes sense. Ketamine was a bit of an odd one out. I mean, I, I applaud the creativity, but let's talk about this Collingwood team because... They can't do it again this year. They can't get away with it the same way. I don't think they can, especially considering, you know, both their finals losses were one goal games, although Max Holmes thought Geelong had actually gone up by seven when he had scored, not six, which is still really funny to me. As a reminder, they won 11 games by 12 points or fewer this past year, including all of their games between rounds 16 and 21. That included an after the siren win and the one where they crushed Gold Coast's dreams. The one where they actually had to battle against North and David Noble still got fired anyway. There were teams that you just couldn't look away from, and it's often like that anyway because it's Collingwood and they're going to be talked about. But really, if there was, you know, one must-watch team last year, I think it had to have been them. Yeah, a lot of times the main character isn't the best team. Because, look, Geelong won a lot of games pretty comfortably. There were times when Geelong was the main character last year, but, like, during the home and away season, during that whole winning streak, there were only a couple of games where the Cats really were in, like, the most compelling game. There was, I would say, that 13-point win over the Bulldogs before the bye, where Tom Stewart got concussed. Then, obviously, the game of the year candidate against Richmond. And I guess the two-goal win at Port Adelaide, but... Part of that crazy round 19, which was the same round where Collingwood won after the siren. But that's only three out of 13 games where you could argue that Geelong was really the main character. I think just not just going by margin, but with Jack Ginevan becoming a name, the fun subplot for us of Mason Cox's development and everything, Collingwood was the main character. And I don't know if they're going to be the main character again this year. I think we have a lot of candidates. I think Gold Coast can be the main character more often than not. And we could kind of have, you know, who's the main character each week. Maybe that could actually be something we track, although sometimes it's tough because, you know, it'll be two teams that played against each other. But over the course of a few weeks, yeah, I mean, like, we'll be able to tell who the main character is. 
And this is not like Twitter where you don't want to be the main character. There will be times when it's less desirable to be the main character. Like, yeah, like, like I almost considered Essendon a main character late last season just because of all the drama around Truck. Noah Cumberland being the main character when he played on against Frio, although I guess that would be more like a urinating tree lol cow of the week. And that was also round 19. Nearly the entire AFL was the main character of round 19 last year. I'm just looking at the chart. There were like three games that week that weren't super compelling. Anyway, enough round 19. Yeah, because Collingwood's entire season was basically like that. And yeah, I don't know if they can do that again, but they have made some compelling acquisitions. They've really gotten an older, more experienced side to the list, which I didn't necessarily expect. I thought that they were going to kind of let the younger ranks develop into being those prime guys and maybe not try to rock the boat too much. But some of those guys that were big last year might have to wait their turn now. Dan McStay coming in may slide Ash Johnson to a spot where he might be spending more time in the VFL this year. Until someone gets hurt. I really like Johnson, even though I know he struggled in the loss to Sydney, but I really like him. Super high ceiling, of course. He makes set shots fun. I remember against Collingwood and then the next game out against Geelong, two awesome set shot goals kind of kicked in different ways from the same pocket. And then Jeremy Cameron responding in like. They also brought in Tom Mitchell, and he's already looking really at home at center bounces. Center clearances have been his thing for a long time, and he's helping connect with Jordan Degoe. And that was something that was really missing, you know, off center contests last year, having that first connection. Because when guys like Jordan Degoe and Taylor Adams can get the ball in hand, they tend to have pretty good instincts with it. And Degoe in particular can be a strong kick pretty much anywhere on the ground. So you enable him to have more of those strong kick opportunities and good things ought to happen. Adams was that late guy a lot of the time for them, kind of connecting the midfielders and the forwards. Like how Pendlebury sometimes was that connection between the back six and the middle six. And Nick Dacos was even that as well. I just want to say how much more compelling of a main character Collingwood is than the main character in, like, any American sport. Like, you think of the Yankees, they're nowhere near this compelling. The Dallas Cowboys, I mean, it's always entertaining to see who they'll lose to in the playoff. Like, the Dallas Cowboys, I think of as compelling but predictable, whereas Collingwood, they can go in so many different directions and... The most likely outcome for them hasn't been winning the grand final, but losing it. You know, they're always in the mix. They're not necessarily the best, but they give you reasons to watch them and reasons to talk about them. And whether or not they're good, I hope they continue being so watchable and fun to talk about because I think I've made this comparison multiple times during season one, but like, Having the Yankees and Red Sox on Sunday night baseball when it's not a super important game just sucks. Meanwhile, Collingwood Carlton has lived up to the hype. Oh yeah, Carlton. Just remember, the Blues spent the entire season in the top eight. Many people forget this. The Blues and Pies will, of course, play twice this year. Collingwood's other double-ups are Adelaide, Brisbane, Essendon, Geelong, and Port Adelaide. The metrics on this one are a little mixed. It's 
a pretty strong double up mix based on percentage, but not as strong when you're looking at ladder positions. And I think the percentage is more accurate here because, again, Adelaide and Carlton ought to be rising this year. And Port Adelaide, of course, had... They're not going to start 0-5 again, are they? I don't know, but Port had a better percentage than Collingwood last year by 6%. They had the 7th best percentage overall. So I think this is a pretty tough schedule, but there's no, like, six-week gauntlet. There are a couple of stretches. I think rounds one through four are actually pretty nasty. You open with Geelong, which is, you know, technically a Geelong home game, but it's at the G. Then... The prison bars game at the G, then Richmond at the G, then they finally leave the G and go to the GABA, and then 16 through 20 shouldn't be overlooked. 16 on the road against the Suns, then they play the Bulldogs at Marvel, host the Dockers at the G, at Port, that's always fun, fuck you Eddie, and then the second matchup against Carlton, I guess that one would be Colcar. Yes, that's Colcar. Car Call is round 10. By the way, speaking of Eddie McGuire and stuff, they play at the Adelaide Oval three times this year, which I just love because they play the Saints there in the Gather Round. Then they visit the Crows in round seven. And like I said, they visit Port Adelaide in round 19. Other than that, you know, it's Collingwood. They're not going to get any games at really interesting sites, which is too bad. I think it would be really fun to stick Collingwood out in Darwin. Give me Melbourne and Collingwood and Alice Springs. I mean, my favorite thing would obviously be to stick Richmond at every possible weird site. You know, stick them in Darwin and Alice Springs and fuck it, stick them in Cairns, even though the Saints aren't really playing there anymore. Richmond and Essendon for Dreamtime in Darwin in 2020 was an absolute blast. I'm not talking about like circumstances like that, though. I'm just talking about make Richmond play away from the G as much as possible to piss them off and like. I guess Collingwood would be the next on that list, but even though they're such a big club and have such a big following, they don't seem to bitch about it anywhere near as much. So good on them for that. Yeah, credit credit to the pies on that. How about their sleepers for this year? I actually want to go over their injuries first because that's going to tie into my thoughts on their sleepers. So we obviously knew about Jack Gittivan's suspension. We knew that Nathan Kruger was going to miss time after yet another shoulder reconstruction. Will he ever play consecutive games again? I like watching him, and oh, as do I. As a pretty physical player, even though I don't think he has like much of a mean streak to him, just the way he plays, it's appropriate for Collingwood. The most debilitating injury for the Pies thus far this year is Pat Lipinski's dislocated shoulder that he suffered against Hawthorne in their preseason game. He's out for the first half of the season, and because Lipinski's out, Josh Carmichael is likely the next man up. He was right on the fringe of the best 23, could have been a sub. I think now he's solidly in that top 22. And so Carmichael's my sleeper. He was a midseason draftee last year, played seven games. It was also the unused sub once. Seen in both midfield and half forward spots and averaged about 14 touches when active. But He's probably going to see that number increase because of how much Lipinski factored into things and how much they're going to miss him. And so you're going to see him have greater importance. So he's not going to be a sleeper for long, but I'm not sure how much non-Collingwood fans are thinking about him right now. Is that, um, that Lipinski injury, 
fellow kids. That's that's what you call a uh, a broad moment. Ethan says with a music band shirt on. My sleeper pick, even though I've already been hyping this guy up a lot because he's physical, physical midfielder, but can also do some stuff as a key forward. I really liked him before he got hurt last year. It's Reef McGinnis, which is also just a great name. Like, he could be a SpongeBob character, which I think is really important. Okay, we might need someone to draw that now. Oh, yeah, it's like, you know, there's the, you know, get drawn as like a Simpson or Family Guy character or as a South Park character. Or just put Clay Thompson's face on Patrick Starr and everybody laughs. But yeah, um, yeah, McGinnis. I'd love to see Reef McGinnis as a fifth. But yeah, he's been trialed a bunch at key forward and... I don't like the idea of him being in that full forward group ahead of Ash Johnson. It just doesn't sit right with me with what his natural skill set is. And you know, there's nothing wrong with a bigger bodied midfielder. I really like the idea of McInnes as an interchange guy or as the sub because he's you know, pretty versatile, plug and play. I think he's going to kind of be that cult hero fan favorite type who's going to be around for a long time. And he's only 20, so... You're probably going to be hearing about him for a while. And just remember the other cool thing about him? Half Filipino. That's why he was in the Next Generation Academy. Didn't realize that being Filipino qualified you for that. Again, I just like seeing the variety of cultural backgrounds that get into this, that have gotten into the footy. You know, that's why we were so hyped about seeing Ace show up for the Suns, seeing the Irishman be prominent for Geelong. All the indigenous players just embracing their identity so much and really being central parts of the Sir Doug Nichols rounds on and off the oval. My biggest thing is just, I want more people playing and talking about footy and getting more countries involved will help because like, look, American football is pretty exclusively American. When you get a few players from various Pacific islands and a couple is with British or Nigerian roots, but like Australian football really doesn't have that effect yet. Where, I mean, outside of Australia, it's still, despite being, you know, 150 plus years old, it's still a pretty unknown game. So the more players you get from the more places, the more we're going to get to have people talking about it, which is good for everybody and good for footy. All right. uh, Two left. Yeah, two left. And these are a couple teams that once again match up in the first round. Is it going to be the home team or the away team for that game? No, you got to say it like like the announcer on Madden or any other video game when it's a custom team. You know, it's the home team. I mean, it's the away team. 10-7. Creating so many teams in Madden 08, I remember that so much. Just Al Michaels' voice of the visiting team and the home team. And I played so much NCAA 14 that you knew, like, every single line before the broadcasters would say it. Like, you know, when a guy drops an interception and, you know, oh, funny thing is, earlier this week, he was telling his coach he wanted to play wide receiver. All right, so is it going to be the home team or the visiting team? It's going to be the visiting team. So the one that both of us picked to win the flag. Okay. Yep. That, of course, is the Brisbane Lions. This said with the Lions, you know, it was an I'll see it when I believe it. And then you started believing it when they broke their finals and MCG curse all in one. Just that told me completely being able to turn around 
from those two games against Melbourne in the home and away. Charlie Cameron being able to get the better of Michael Hayward. And the most impressive part of that for me was, you know, Joe Danaher and Eric Hibwood had been able to do really well when they were both in there. Danaher was away because his kid had just been born. Hibwood played maybe the best game he'd played all year. And he's healthy to start this season. Knock on wood for him. And then once Dane Zorko stepped down from captaincy, I thought that was the other thing. Like, again, I don't think captain's that huge a role, but there are some guys that you look at and say, yeah, they're not going to win a premiership with this guy as captain. And I like Dane Zorko. He's a good player. You need shit heel types. But I like him as, you know, a vice captain or just kind of that pain in the ass guy, not the main face of your club leader. Well, they have two main faces of the club now in that front because Harris Andrews and Lockie Neal are co-captains. Cool for them to have a native Queenslander as a captain. Andrews going through the state-level ranks there, having played with Aspley before going to the Lions. I wonder how much him being a Queenslander factored into things, especially considering Neal didn't start his fell career with Brisbane. You know, you see so many one-club guys being captains. In fact, only two clubs don't have a one-club player as at least one of their co-captains, those being Adelaide and Geelong. But yeah, I think this, if you're just looking at who should be the best team, I think it's the Lions. Between what they already had, you add a superstar in Josh Dunkley, you also just happen to have a guy named Shadow Brain. Yes, and he's a Category B rookie, but you have to mention him just because of his name. I think Jack Dunstan is an acquisition that is going to be looked on really favorably. He's such a sound set shot that I think it's going to allow Joe Danaher some flexibility in playing in other spots on the ground, being more of a mark rather than a kick. The Jack Gunston is really just a supplemental guy that isn't among the first few that come to mind when you look at their forward group, is really good for a guy that's kind of towards the end of his career. Again, 31 is very old in the footy world. And that he's going to be kind of like that bonus guy that you can rely on. Bonus track, bonus track. That's a really good position to be in. And then you look at what they did in being able to get the picks they needed to lock up those two father-son picks. And Will Ashcroft will be in the midfield right away. It's pretty stunning to say that because, I mean, what the hell do you say that for any first-year player? Yeah, he's in the midfield line round one. And you wonder why I've got him as my rising star pick. The other thing that I really want to talk about with this Lions group is, like, what's their weakness? The one concern is if you're a big defense wins championships guy, they could be a little thin defensively, especially with Marcus Adams probably done because of concussions. You're going to need you know, someone like a Ryan Lester or a Dara Joyce or someone else to really step up in that regard. Maybe Darcy Wilmot. Wilmot's more of a running halfback type, bit of an outside guy going toward the wing. And I like what I saw from Wilmot last year. But yeah, Adams and Andrews were a strong tandem last year. When Andrews had an off game, Adams was usually there to hold up his end of the bargain. Darcy Gardner was up and down last year. He has a setback in his shoulder recovery, so he's now doubtful for round one. And you did kind of steal my thunder there with talking about Ryan Lester because he's my sleeper at age 30. Lester's going to have tall defensive opportunities right away alongside Andrews and Jack Parker Payne. 
He was the joint VFL best and fairest last year at age 30. He's still part of their leadership team, and he's someone that stands out as a next man up. I found it really hard to find a, find a guy here because in terms of personnel, they're mostly pretty well established. I mean, it would be kind of easy to pick like Devin Robertson or Kai Lohman. So I went with Harry Sharp. I remember he got a few games in last year. Might have been five games. Actually, you know the biggest reason I picked him? He's a former steeplechaser. Are you telling me he's going to be an All-Australian playing everywhere on the ground then? I don't think so. He's nowhere near Mark Blitzob's size. No, just 183 centimeters. He's under six feet, but he's considered to be a really good runner. And, you know, just like Daniel Rich gains a lot of ground, you could have him kind of be one of the other links as they go down the field, whether it's linking Rich up to the midfield or linking the midfield to the forward group. And and Rich is no spring chicken either. He's 32. But someone that I think they'll be able to get some use out of that we probably just haven't talked about much. I think within the next couple of years, you could see Sharp really taking that sort of spot that Rich has had because he doesn't have all that much time left at this point. One thing that the 2022 Lions really had going for them that usually doesn't carry over year to year is great health. That said, their injury list right now outside of Marcus Adams is pretty short, but I think they do have enough depth thanks to the guys like Kai Lohman and if they get contributions of the guys like Harry Sharp to withstand that. I really liked uh, that you mentioned Devin Robertson as well. I was hoping that the Eagles would make a play on him and maybe give Brisbane a pick that would help them get Will Ashcroft and Jasper Fletcher in the draft. Robertson probably goes down a spot in their depth chart because of Ashcroft being there now. But I liked him in all three finals last year, had a goal against Richmond. So watch for him and see, you know, if he's content where he is in their spot on the list. We could really be talking about him going into next summer as someone on the move. Schedule-wise, I look at rounds one to four as especially difficult. You open at Port Adelaide, then host the Demons, Bulldogs at Marvel, then host Collingwood. Your rounds 18 through 21 could also be really nasty if the Suns can keep being competitive in Q clashes, which, you know, it's only happened once. I'd like it to happen a lot more, but round 18, face the Demons at the G, host Geelong round 19, at Gold Coast round 20, at Frio round 21. That could be pretty nasty. It's a pretty strong schedule, not the strongest. It's a notch below Geelong and Sydney's strength of schedule in most respects. Based on points, it's third strongest ladder position in home and away season. It's third strongest. By percentage, it's only six, and that's Collingwood and St. Kilda driving that down. Remember, Collingwood were only at 104% last year. This is, though, a pretty tough schedule, especially if the Suns and Crows continue climbing. Really, the Saints are the only one there that I look at as not much of a threat. And fun contests against them last year, though, until injuries got to St. Kilda. But, you know, me saying they're going to win the flag does not mean I'm also saying they're going to be minor premiers. It's worked out that way the past two years. I'm not sure if it will this time. I'm not going to tip a minor premier, actually, for now. That said, these guys are among the teams to beat, and they've got a fittingly difficult schedule because... They're good. 
two notable venues for the Lions this year. They come back to back in round five. The Gather round. They, for some reason, are one of the teams that the league is going to send out to the hills in Mount Barker. That's going to be the Lions against North there. Well, I think it makes sense because I don't think they have a super huge following in Adelaide. It'll be a cool side if nothing else. I love that the league is sort of getting back to regional footy in this sense. And then the next round, they go to Canberra to face the Giants because GWS always hosts a game in the capital for Anzac round. And I believe that'll also be one like that, what, the Easter Carnival or something of the sort is at the... I think that also helps. Because yeah, when we when we wrote down GWS's schedule, they had a couple other of their, or one of their other Canberra games was around that time as well. So. Yeah, round eight. So it's the Cardinals usually around that time. Though Easter falls a little earlier than that this year. How can I tell? Because Geelong and Hawthorne play round four. And where does that leave us? Uh, sitting here in South San Francisco, listening to the rainfall, and thinking about how quickly Ken Hinckley could get fired this season? Yes, for our... Final team to cover, it is Port Adelaide, so I guess you don't really need to do the uh, random list thing with just just one team on there, but it would be pretty pointless. But, you, I mean, go do it. Fuck it. Fuck it. Here's the wheel sound effect. I wonder who's going to come up first on this list. Error, your list must contain at least two items. Boo. Regardless, Port didn't make a bunch of moves this offseason, but the ones they made were big. In fact, it was really all together with Jason Horton Francis and Junior Rioli both coming in the mega trade. So everything came together for him. The thing with Port Adelaide that we've talked about over the last few years is that they've been a team that's done a really good job beating up on lesser competition. Like if you're below probably seventh-ish on the ladder, you're going to be in for a rough time against them. But they've often struggled against really good teams. There's a reason. David King calls them the Dallas Cowboys of the AFL. Kingy hits the spot once again. You know what SpongeBob would say? But he don't miss. I thought SpongeBob would say, hey, that's my ice cream cone. Well, I think a lot of times they have been in that role because, you know, it's like, hey, that's my premiership. Hey, that's my flag. Great. Now let him have it. You can have it. Say thanks! No! Yeah, we've been pretty critical of Ken Hinckley as a coach. We thought they underachieved last year. When you looked at where they ended up last year, the biggest thing was that those games at the start of the season, really the Hawthorne and Adelaide losses in particular were the two, where normally against teams that are in the lower spots on the ladder, they win. They take care of those games. Those were teams that finished 13th and 14th, and they lost those two games. And had they won those two, they would have been a finalist easily because they would have had more than sufficient percentage. Still, they would have only been eight. They weren't as great at defending the home turf throughout the year. They went just seven and four at home. And admittedly, three of those losses were pretty reasonable ones. Melbourne, Geelong, and a Richmond team that had really hit their stride in August. But 7-4 and four at home with only one really impressive home win, that being the pretty thorough dispatching of the Swans, that was pretty unlike them. So I do think they're in to return to form this year, but I don't know what they would be able to do where I would say, yeah, this is good, stay on this course, keep Hinkley around, 
I think they've got to win at least one finals game, if not two, for Hinkley to stick around. I think I'm in the same boat here. I think it's just win a final. One thing that might make things difficult in them getting there, though, is that they have the toughest schedule out of a non-finalist team. They're somewhere around the fourth or fifth toughest based on last year's ladder positions, percentage, and points. They're doubling up against, of course, the Crows, but also Collingwood, Essendon, Geelong, Richmond, and the Bulldogs. Yeah, they are by far the lowest team from last year to have four doubles with finalists. And that fifth being Adelaide isn't particularly easy either. The only one that I see them being pretty good shape against is Essendon. So this is not going to be an easy schedule. Frankly, four of the first five rounds are tough because for some reason being the home team in showdown matters a lot. But you start off hosting the Lions, then you're at Collingwood, you host the Crows, you're at Sydney, you host the Bulldogs for the... Gather round. You've also got a pretty nasty four out of five stretch rounds, 10 through 14. That one jumped out at me. Hosting Melbourne, going to Richmond, hosting Hawthorne, going to the Bulldogs, hosting Geelong before the bye. And then I wouldn't sleep on this stretch round 17 through 19 where they host the Suns, then visit Carlton and host the Pies. And then watch out after that. It's the road showdown and then a trip to Cardinia Park. And then, yeah, things get easier with the Giants, but you finish up at Frio and home against Richmond. So, yeah, that's, that's not an easy post-buy for them at all. By the way, it's worth mentioning that game against Gold Coast, they have... They are tied with Richmond, who have won 13 straight against Essendon for longest head-to-head winning streak. They have won 13 in a row against the Suns. 13! 13! (laughs) The only game the Suns have won against Port was their first ever win, and that was at the old football park. So, again, the Suns are still looking for their first win at the Adelaide Oval against anybody. The Suns will play twice at the Adelaide Oval because... We mentioned they double up with the Crows, but that's a month after they've got the power. Anyway, I see Port Adelaide as a team that, you know, if the if the Suns do make it, it could be at their expense. It could be at the Bulldogs' expense. It could be at the Blues' expense because the Blues... Jeez, I'm sounding like Cameron Mooney here talking about Carlton. I know we talked about how there's a world in which we could see the Demons be, you know, the... Surprise team that misses finals, but I think that was really before we, I saw them in preseason action. But I think it's going to be tough for Port to get back in because there are a lot of good teams. I I mean, if you look at this, you see, I would say, 11 teams that you'd identify as legit finals contenders with the Crows kind of as that 12th, you know, outside champ, I guess, and then... Here's a world in which Essendon or St. Kilda could somehow make things happen, or, you know, maybe the Eagles are just unbeatable at home and they piece together one or two road wins or something. I think, don't get me optimistic. I think last year there were probably more like 12 finals contenders. I think probably 11 this year, but to get back in there, they're going to have to stave off a couple of teams that they were had in, you know, neck and neck with last year, and they're going to have to push a couple other teams out of the way. Thankfully, they've got a pretty clean injury report to start the season. The only one concern is Jeremy Finlayson, though he's hoping to play round one and angle complaints there. Congratulations to him and his now wife on their marriage as well. I know it's been very tough with her cancer diagnosis, and, you know, 
the whole AFL has been really supportive of him. Obviously, Port and his former team, the Giants, have led the way there. Finlayson's in a in a cool spot on the list because Port went with that no-ruck approach for a decent amount of last year while Scott Lysette went down. And Finlayson was often, you know, not the hit-out machine, but effective at getting the ball to advantage. And the clearance numbers tended to be reasonable for Port. I think they're going to have, you know, a more straight-ahead ruck approach this year if Lysette's healthy. I think Charlie Dixon will still take some of those, especially in the forward 50, but I'm not sure how much you're going to see it out of Finlayson. If Lysette isn't in great shape, though, which, again, I'm questioning after Sean Darcy had his way with him in that preseason showing against Frio, then maybe Sam Hayes is the next guy up in the ruck department, and so Hayes is a sleeper for me. Here's one other that I can throw in that mix, Dante Vicentini. He is a ruck who could also play as a forward if needed. I mean, Vicentini, Hayes, Bryn Teagle. I'm seeing Teagle playing over Hayes at the moment, but I have laughter. It's we saw out of Teagle. Yeah, you know, the right sort of aggression for sure. I remember he hurt himself. He might have broken his collarbone in his first game. But Teagle's playing over Hayes in the mold, but after he didn't have a good showing against Frio either, that may change. And Hayes had interest from Collingwood last year. The bottom line for me is I can't see Port making a push for finals without a true ruck, so he ought to get an opportunity at some point. And if he doesn't and they're on the outside looking in come September, I'm going to be questioning why. I'm going to go with the kind of obvious pick here, but especially because this guy's a former cat, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's Francis Evans. I mean, I'm not sure how much non-Port and non-Geelong fans are thinking about him. You know, he's a lifetime 7-0. He's a physical mid-forward type. And they're definitely going to need some of that with Travis Boak being near the end of things, Robbie Gray on the way out. Could be a good kind of extra guy to have outside of the Connor Rosie zach Butters tandem. Especially when you look at, you know, so many of their better forwards are, you know, full forward, take the mark. You have physical marks for sure. Guys like Charlie Dixon can, can take those. But guys who, you know, kind of need to make those plays at the edge of the center square to the edge of the forward 50, that's something that Evans could definitely do. And just look, I know it's not entirely correlation it might be a bit more coincidence but he's a lifetime seven and oh which at the very least shouldn't be overlooked i do have a bit of a question with port in terms of their back six because when you're looking for like that real tall key defender there i'm not sure who their best bet is there tom jonas did a very good job in a lot of one-on-one work last year his season was probably the most impressive out of the three that i've seen of him and Alira Lear, when healthy, is generally in all Australian form. But Tom Clurry is going to be asked a lot of this year. He's their tallest in defense, but he's only 193 centimeters. So you can see 200 plus centimeter guys give them some real trouble. And even just some more physical players who are able to, to push Clurry around. I remember that Tom Hawkins had a strong showing against the Port back line both times out. Jeremy Cameron played pretty damn well in that first game against him, too, kicking that barrel. That was one of the more fun highlights of the year, although my favorite Cameron goal was the snap against Carlton, which ooh, yeah, was actually included in a YouTube video that I saw earlier today. I guess now technically yesterday, but this guy on YouTube, Isaac Punts, he does videos about punting, 
like the American football punting. So I like, you know, like what Aaron Sipos is doing now. Yeah, not anything to do with like gambling or small boats, but um, he talked and Phil had to punt them across. Yeah, um, we didn't know the <laughs> that a punt was a small boat back when we were reading the Harry Potter books, and so when we saw that Argus Filch had to punt some of the kids across part of a hallway that the Weasley twins had turned into a swamp, we visualized him drop kicking them, which would have been way cooler than just you know. I mean, it fits Argus's character. A boat these last 30 seconds than any other person ever has ever. I just think it's a cool name, cool mythological name. But um, he talked about, you know, how Australian football has influenced American punting. You could see it from the college ranks in particular, thanks to Pro Kick Australia. And just one of the clips he showed, you know, I guess some of the B-roll was the Cameron goal against Carlton. So, you know, it's like the, the meme of Leo DiCaprio, like, pointing at the screen that that was me that's just about where we're gonna leave off although i did just see some news it's sounding more and more like tom hawkins will play round one but uh sam metagola just had surgery so he's gonna be out in the medium term he had his knee operated on so that was kind of an impromptu news everyone i don't think it was enough to merit the news everyone soundbite but um We'll have a lot more news coming soon because we're just a few days away from previewing round one and then maybe an emergency list episode. Wouldn't be shocked if we had an emergency list episode for round one just because, you know, we have our theories, but they're hypotheses. They're not theories until they've been tested and largely proven. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, the proof would come from last year and that was last year. But you're going to be away during a bit of that. Yes, I will be in the mythical land of Arizona, so that is actually where I will be when we record our round one preview and any potential list episode, and then I will be watching the opening match from there before returning home. I will be watching the rest of round one from here in South San Francisco. I'm really looking forward to getting started. It's kind of snuck up on me with everything else I've had going on lately, but... I'm ready. These past few episodes have really helped get me ready to it. I hope that it's helped get you as excited as we are. I wouldn't mind taking a bit more of a victory lap before we really get started, but um, the bad way to do that would just be keep winning. So let's 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 keep winning. Victory lap. I'm a new West Coast Eagles fan. What is that? Remember, you can find us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. I am at Benjamin HK01. I am at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is on Instagram at cap named Brian. And uh, just keep listening to us and interacting with us. Again, anything that you think we either glossed over or got wrong, or if you just want to agree with us, tweet at us, send us a telegram, or I mean, it would be kind of hard to see smoke signals probably if you're, you know, especially if you're in Australia, but carrier pigeons are welcome or. You know, if you want to act out, like, the signal flag semaphore stuff wouldn't work, again, because of the distance. You'd have to, like, come here physically to do that. You know, just any form of feedback is good. Spotify replies, even, on an Aldous slam. Ooh, that's a good one. Underrated. Yeah, enjoy these last few days with maybe not as much stress because the body isn't upon us yet, because it's going to be coming in full soon. <laughs>